0: Welcome to CFAS Podcast, I'm Michael Hedstrom, and today we will give you some practical ideas and insight on why and how to incorporate closed-down funds in your portfolio. While it's true that closed-down funds are structurally more complex than ETFs and open-end mutual funds, closed-down funds offer a number of benefits, including discounts and offer high yields and are potentially more rewarding. It's my pleasure to have with me Frank Abella, President and CEO of Investment Partners Group, and Greg Abella. Co-principal and portfolio manager. Frank and Greg have incorporated closed-end funds in the practice for a long time. Their firm, Investment Partners Asset Management, is a registered investment advisor and a fee-based advisory firm based in New Jersey. Frank and Greg, thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, I want to thank you for having us have the opportunity to address the Closed End Fund Association universe. Absolutely, thank you. We love the opportunity to talk about closed-ends.
0: Let's start with the closed end fund universe. What areas of the financial markets do you consider for closed-down funds? And how have the choices perhaps changed in recent years?
1: Well, we actually focus on equity funds, although we use all the funds, including some muni funds, which basically are ones that are directed at the cities and the states that are within various parts of the country. Over the years, historically, funds were few and far between. They were mainly equity funds. They were internally managed. And that's changed over the 40 years that I've been doing this as a practitioner from a wide array of investment choices today with significant focus on the part of some of the fund sponsors on debt offerings. So there has been an evolution. I think the evolution has come because demands of investors who along the way wanted to have some diversity and they also wanted to have choice. And the sponsors reacted to that. And as a result, the industry has grown significantly from under 100 funds 40 years ago, well under 100 funds, to now well in excess of 600. There are also a lot of different asset classes that really weren't
2: in vogue or in focus. When I started in the business about you know 18 years ago, I came on board here. There weren't really publicly traded business development companies, for example, or closed ends that focused on a very specific area of the market, like Master Limited Partnerships. As you're trying to build out a diversified portfolio for a client um, and you're using maybe some financial planning software, you've got to hit a lot of different buckets. And uh, the closed-end fund space, I find, is really helpful in that regard.
0: You mentioned demand by investors. Investors often see high regular income when investing in closed-end funds. What should they keep in mind when evaluating closed-end funds uh, and analyzing a fund's distribution, premium and discounts, and so forth?
2: If you look at a fund strictly from the attribute of a discount, you know, we're value guys and income guys. So, you know, sometimes you look at a fund and say, wow, look at that yield, or wow, look at that discount. And uh, chasing a discount and chasing a yield sort of result in the same end result. And we've all probably been burned at one point in our lives or another chasing what we think something is cheap and it gets cheaper or something that uh, has a certain yield and it turns out that that yield isn't secure. So you have to be uh, very diligent in your research to see if the either the discount is a result of something that's, that's a historic attribute of the fund that has been there for a long time and there's no uh, incentive to change it, or if the yield is not really a yield, it's more of a return of capital, and that, that's something that you have to be careful of as well. But sometimes, sometimes look at discount or a um, A high yield can just strictly be from an exogenous matter, like a geopolitical event causes the market generally to drop, and the bids kind of disappear in the closed-end space, and that creates a lot of opportunity. Or, since many of them are income-oriented, when yield spreads blow out, uh, some of the uh, closed-end funds that invest in fixed income securities suddenly will drop in price, and you you can get if the discounts really widen, you can get an extra year's worth of income just because you're buying at the right price.
1: One, so, of the, uh, one of the things I think that we're pointing to here is that there's a sea change coming. It's as obvious as the Federal Reserve's posture, which has benefited income-oriented type of investors because of low yields, and the fact that the drop in yields over a period of time has made, that made these funds as standouts for inclusion in client portfolios. If, in fact, the distributions that were being paid were actually earned. And what we have found along the way is that you have to pay very close attention to what is actually being distributed. And when you don't get just the net investment income, but you get some idea of what the investment manager thinks they need to support the stock in the marketplace, and they pay out some portion of the the capital appreciation, whether realized or unrealized, mainly unrealized, that this isn't sustainable. So, right now, I think we have a problem that the Closed End Fund Association may be focusing on, and that is that while we've emphasized yield on the part of the sponsors, that yield may not be sustainable.
0: So, like you said, there's a lot that you need to pay attention to. Can you talk a little bit about your selection process and how you compare Closed End Funds with, say, ETFs and open-end mutual funds?
1: Sure. For the purposes of the process... In our case, it hasn't changed all that much because what we do is first and foremost we look at the portfolio. If it's a portfolio that's made up of holdings, and you can easily do this. This is just take the ten largest holdings in the portfolio. In most cases, and if it's something that we think we don't have representation in in terms of inclusion in client portfolios, then it makes us look further. If it looks like it's adding a bit of diversity to us in addition to the fact that it's something we don't cover. Then that's even another plus. Then we look at the track record of the manager. And we look at, the, because each one of these companies, really, the fingerprint or the footprint is actually in there by taking a look at what the manager is favoring currently. Well, you know, it's a great point. There's probably never been an easier time to buy
2: closed ends and research them because there's so many good sources of information, like CIFA's website, for example, is a great place to go. Back you know, a couple of decades ago when I started working with Frank, you had to comb through the holdings by, you know, based on 13F filings, and, you know, you would have to calculate the discounts all by hand, and now you can sort by income, discount, sector. It's gotten much more efficient than it used to be, and as you're allocating, you can find a lot of uh,
1: attractive opportunities just because of the amount of data that's out there. Before we even make a judgment as to whether or not we're going to invest, We have to know a lot more about the fund structure. Leverage funds in some environments are really great. Maybe not so much now. Uh, We're going to see whether or not that plays out. But it's a judgment about structure. We look at the sponsor and the sponsor's commitment to the space. Now, the ones I mentioned, the Black Rocks and the Aberdeens, uh, the Nuveen, those people are in this game to play. So we understand them. We also understand that they are committed to the space, and therefore they do things which are basically right by us as investors. So there's an alignment of interest that's key and important to us. The level of return that we're seeking is an absolute return as opposed to a relative return. So in many cases, what we're looking at is whether or not we can forecast what that portfolio might do under a number of circumstances. And so we try to risk test the portfolio. That that is currently in place, and then, unlike a lot of others, we try to have dialogue with the actual portfolio managers themselves. If possible, these boards tend to be very accessible if you
2: simply go to the annual meeting, and since we're proximate to New York and many of the annual meetings are held in the New York metropolitan area, you can go and, and dialogue is to your heart content. with A lot of the really
1: good quality managers out there are open books. They're more than happy in some instances, as long as you stay on a professional plane with them, they're quite confident in what they know they can impart to us, not saying what particular securities they're going to buy, but the areas that they find interesting in investing. For us, that's a guidepost. It also suggests a lot more of the transparency that I think you can do in this space, which you can't do and necessarily, and certainly can't do in ETS. And in the open-end space, I wouldn't say that there are too many open doors in the open-end space. There is in the closed-end. We buy closed-end funds. Normally, in a inclusion in a portfolio is built around a core belief that we have. And so we could easily put closed-end funds in after we've done a lot of research to determine whether or not our belief system is being validated by the actual managers. In an ETF sense, you can plug these in, but... The view is that most of them are passively managed, although there are some actively managed ones. But we're not getting the same type of inclusion opportunity that we feel we have with the closed-end funds. Another important aspect is that in open ends and ETFs, if there are heavy
2: redemptions, those securities that are underlying in the portfolio have to be sold. In a closed-end, that's not the case. If they can be tactical and and maintain long-term holdings, without having to hit the bid just because investment fervor is, or there's a large redemption, or the investment fervor temporarily abates. So I like that
1: attribute of them as well. Uh, When ETFs are compared to closed-end funds and even open-end funds, the attraction sometimes is the lower expense ratio. That to us is not as much important. I think that there are some of the differences that actually we welcome, which basically are that, We can get a yield component that is made up of other than just the income that's derived from dividends and interest that are paid by the fund, not as they're incurred, that is in the ETF space, where the closed-end funds can actually manage distributions a lot better. So in that sense, they are different. In many cases, then, therefore, there really are no direct comparisons with an ETF. And I would also add that many of the closed-end funds are taking a page out of the ETFs
2: book and coming up with some pretty creative strategies that are really, I think, great fits in our client portfolios and their strategies we employ, such as uh, covered call writing. If you think that the the market going forward for the next five years is not going to give you quite the same upside as it has for the past five years, covered call writing is going to be a very worthwhile strategy that can produce nice results even if the market trades sideways. So that's just one example of a strategy that even just a few years ago wasn't replicated in the uh, closed-end fund space, and now there are many funds that use that
1: strategy. Maybe we should also emphasize the fact that the distributions, when the net asset value is growing, gives us a a chance to have an ever-increasing amount of retention of the unrealized capital gain inside the portfolio, And when that happens, you're now getting, if you reinvest in the fund, you're getting a compounding of the return that you can expect from a job well done on the part of the managers. The ETF space, not so much. So what we're doing, I think, is making an amalgam of all of the things that basically characterize why it is that the closed-end funds are far more attractive to us. The comparison with open-end funds... The plan sponsors basically are spending a lot of dollars advertising the rest of it on their open-end fund platforms, Uh, maybe not so much in the closed-end fund space. We'd like to see that change, by the way, if it were possible. But anyway, the point of it is it probably is one of the things that contributes to the discounts. Yeah, if you have one sponsor out there who has
2: two funds that are very similar, one that trades at NAV and pays out X percent, and a similar portfolio that... Traded at a discount to NAV, and the yield is uh, X plus one. I'll take X plus one for an income investor.
1: You add it, you add attractively priced leverage to the equation, you get a further compounding. So the chance to produce alpha from the same type of portfolio that might be in an ETF is greater in the closed end fund space, particularly if the discount looks like something that works to our advantage in terms of the distributions.
0: I want to go back to something you touched on earlier. I know you place a lot of weight on an alignment of interest of the fund manager and the fund itself. Why are the management's motives an important part of your evaluation process?
2: Well, I'm going to start with this one and then Frank can jump in. But we have a lot to say about this. As with any industry, you have some very well-respected players, and then you have outliers. And that um, outliers is putting it mildly. When I was mentioning that there are discounts, and sometimes the discount isn't enough of a reason to buy a closed-end fund, some of those discounts are warning signs for possibly funds where the interests are not necessarily wholly aligned with uh, the shareholders, and its conflicts of, of interest are rife. Uh, uh, you, in the BDC space, this is particularly prevalent. Yeah, you know, There are a couple reasons why I mention that. If you're in a fund that is a serial capital raiser, and they'll raise capital to increase the size of the fund and increase management fees, regardless of where... What sort of discount the fund might have, that's obviously not in anyone's interest as a shareholder. If, when there's really high insider ownership, you would think that that bespeaks an attribute of the fund that you would want to have, but ironically, that tends to be the result of either a management team that's had to buy the stock from an activist because they went after the fund or went after the management, or the insiders uh, buy a lot of the fund because it's an uh, anti-takeover
1: mechanism. We have observed that there are announcements in policy on the part of the fund that suggest from time to time, where the asset value is significantly greater than the stock price, that there will be share buybacks. We have not seen actually share buybacks, even though there's been an announced policy on the part of the fund, often enough. And that kind of suggests that the fund management loses some of the income that they derive by, in a sense, buying back the stock or the fund. But then on the other hand, we see that fund management with the same discounts is now buying the shares even though their fund basically should be the purchaser. So when that happens, we consider that somewhat of a misalignment of interest with us as shareholders. It also adds to a protectionism on the part of the manager and the steeper the discount, the greater the attraction there would be to an activist investor who would come in and give some attention to the fact that they could in a sense, make an, an announced offer for the fund. We're not in this for tender offers on the part of others. We buy these investments as investments. We expect to be treated fairly by an alignment of interest with us, and in many cases, and I'd say the vast majority, that is the case. I
2: think that activism, though, the fact that those guys are out there, you know, say what you will about them, but I think it's, it's really a great feature that there are sharks swimming because it culls the herd. And if there are funds out there that are not operating efficiently, then the fact that activists are there kind
1: of keeps the other funds out there lean and mean and paying attention to governance. So some of the things that we've actually seen in the past that bothers us is when there's an announcement of an annual meeting, and where they can't muster enough of the boat, they, in a sense announce that we're going to adjourn the meeting until we can actually get the vote. They don't come out and say it quite that way. And then they never tell you when the new meeting is actually going to take place or where it's going to take place. We've seen that on a couple of occasions, and of course it speaks volumes about whether or not management is interested enough to have its shareholders actually participate in the future governance of the fund. The pity
2: is that the fact that there are not that many outliers out there, but they're there. And I think that they impact the rest of the industry, and it reflects poorly sometimes on the industry itself. When you really not most, you know, I, I, governance is obviously it's a very important issue. It's something we pay attention to. It isn't the only thing you should evaluate when evaluating a fund. But knowing that you're investing in one of the funds managed by a, a very reputable firm, it's a good thing to have as when you're evaluating a fund. But I want to make sure that it's conveyed that they're mostly in the closed end fund business, very, very good managers out there. And there are many great funds to choose from. So just that there are outliers isn't enough of a reason to avoid the space entirely. It's just one more thing as part of your due diligence to consider.
0: Greg and Frank, you've given us a lot of food for thought today. Any final thoughts?
1: Well, for one, investing is both an art and a science. We believe that if we are doing this as researchers, he who seeks often will find. And to do this and invest in this space intelligently, you really need to do the work. Or any alternative, you need to find someone you can trust who's done the work and can advise you. The complexities can be overcome. All you need to be able to do, however, is to make the determination in your own mind as to what weight you want to put on most of the things that we basically have discussed. And management to us is important. Sponsorship is important. The fund's attitude towards its stockholders is very, very important. And with that, there's plenty of opportunity in the closed-end fund space for any investor to take advantage of. I would
2: say that if, whether you're an individual investor, uh, or an advisor such as ourselves, the closed-end fund space just provides a very diverse hunting ground to allocate a diverse portfolio over many asset classes and accomplish a lot of objectives, particularly for an investor that's looking for uh, income. So, you know, this is, this is an area we've been investing in for decades, and I imagine as long as there is a closed-end fund space, we'll be in it. Greg and Frank, I want to thank you for taking the time
0: to be with us today. We appreciate hearing your perspective from the field and ideas on how advisors and investors may tap into the opportunity in closed-end funds. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more information and insight about closed-end funds, please visit us at cifa.com. Thank you all for listening. This concludes our podcast. Have a great rest of the day.